So this is a real interesting time. Um, the economy is seldom far from uh, most people's minds, um, but I think it's fair to say that economic conditions are garnering a bit more attention uh, in the public mind uh, recently. Uh, housing markets have deteriorated over the last couple of years. Uh, the resulting losses in mortgage-related securities have contributed to financial market turmoil starting last summer. Uh, the associated decline in employment in financial services industry and in housing construction uh, has contributed to a slowdown in aggregate job growth uh, in the country. And moreover, inflation, both overall inflation and excluding food and energy prices, has picked up of late. As you might imagine, these developments have uh, kept us busy at the Federal Reserve. And so as a result, I'd like to spend some time, my time today, talking about economic conditions. I'll begin by reviewing current conditions and then go on to talk about the outlook. And as usual, I have to begin with the usual disclaimer that my remarks reflect my views and not necessarily any of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. So clearly, economic activity has softened. Uh, at the end of last year, real gross domestic product grew by a meager six-tenths of a percent, and many forecasters are looking for not much better growth, if any, in the current quarter. Much of this sluggishness has been due to the severe housing market downturn, along with the attended financial market fallout. After a 10-year expansion, housing uh, investment peaked in late 2005. Since then, construction and sales have fallen sharply. Uh, in the first in large metropolitan areas, and then spreading to other markets where housing price increases had been less pronounced. Despite the fall-off in construction, inventories of unsold new homes rose sharply. And while inventory levels have actually retreated a little bit in recent months, they have not come down as rapidly as has sales, and they're currently a depressing influence on home prices and new construction. Home prices increased significantly during the long boom from 1995 to 2005, particularly in local markets where the supply of buildable lots was relatively restricted. Existing home prices rose 90% uh, between 95 and 05 for the nation as a whole. In Washington, D.C., prices rose 150% over the same time period, rose another 11% in 2006. In contrast, Charleston, West Virginia, saw prices climb just, just 40%, just under 40% from 95 to 05, and another 2% in 2006. So much less price appreciation out here in Charleston. Of course, rapid increases in the real quality-adjusted uh, price of an asset cannot continue indefinitely uh, for any asset. In the case of housing, potential buyers eventually get priced out of the market and price increases stall out. In many markets, prices change course relatively quickly, but in others, prices have continued to increase. Average prices for the nation as a whole fell in the third quarter of 2007 by four, two, I'm sorry, by four tenths of a percent. That's the first fall at a national level that we've seen since 1994. In formerly hot markets, the declines have been much larger. Prices falling over five percent in San Diego, for example. Prices have also fallen significantly in, in areas with weak regional economic growth. For example, uh, Michigan, northern Ohio. Charleston has avoided an outright decline in prices, although appreciation has remained modest. 
third quarter, uh, home prices grew 2%, and that's a, a good number adjusting for mix and, and uh, quality changes and the like. Developments in housing finance, how mortgages are packaged together, sold off in capital markets, has arguably played a substantial role in the evolution of housing conditions over the last several years. Here the long-term story is the technology-driven wave of innovation in retail credit delivery that we've seen. This enhanced the ability of lenders to make distinctions between the creditworthiness of individual borrowers. This increased the pool of qualified borrowers, and it increased the range of feasible financial products. And by doing so, it dramatically increased the access to mortgage credit for our population. Technologies also contributed to innovation and securitization and other forms of intermediation of credit flows. This spread risks more widely and reduces the cost of bearing those risks, and so that reduction in risk-bearing costs passes back to the consumer in the form of lower borrowing costs. As with any product or service innovation, however, some experimentation and risk was involved. In this case, many of the risks were realized. You're never quite sure if a new product is going to play out. If so, what the appropriate scale of introducing that new product is, how far it's going to be profitable, the extent of the margin. And that's especially true with financial products where the profitability, the viability of a product only emerges slowly over time as default rates and loss rates are realized. Looking back, there are undoubtedly many loans that both the borrower and the lender wish had not been made in recent years. It's important to keep in mind, however, that many borrowers remain better off than they would have been as a result of the recent lending innovations. So in our response, I think it's important not to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Future research may quantify the extent, we haven't done it yet, but future research may quantify the extent to which uh, credit market innovations contributed to the boom in housing market activity by expanding the pool of qualified homeowners. In any event, the growth in housing demand came to an end in the late 2005 Prices peaked and began falling in many areas. In hindsight, it seems clear that the success of new methods of lending to riskier borrowers was to some extent dependent on sustained home price appreciation. Home, sustained home price appreciation provided strained borrowers with the ability to refinance, thus masking the effects of more inclusive underwriting. While observers were concerned early on, uh, the late Federal Reserve Governor Ned Gramlich is a notable example. It wasn't until last year, after home prices had peaked in many major markets, that more quantitative evidence emerged regarding the substantial extent to which mortgage loans made in 2006 would later underperform previous vintages. The ensuing adjustment in underwriting standards has further contributed to the decline in housing activity. The story behind last year's unfolding drama, and I think that's a great word for it, drama in credit markets, was the continuing reassessment of the fundamental value of non-prime mortgages in light of the incoming data, which implied substantially higher ultimate losses on recent vintages of subprimes. Securitization was an important part of the expansion of credit in recent years, 
and securities backed by pools of subprime or other non-traditional mortgages served as the backing for other obligations, usually issued off the balance sheet of the sponsoring institutions. As housing slowed over the summer last year, it became clear that some mortgage-related securities previously judged as relatively safe would suffer substantial losses. Many of these securities were the liabilities of entities with explicit or implicit bank lending guarantees. Many banks that provided such guarantees have had to either meet large funding demands or bring the impaired assets back onto their balance sheets. Uncertainty about the scale of such adjustments has at times meant higher funding costs and capital costs for the related banks, although risk premia increased far more for some institutions than for others. Since then, such institutions have taken large write-offs and many have replenished their capital in the markets. Many affected banks have dramatically increased their advances from the federal home loan banks, where lending increased by 29%, or about $180 billion in the third quarter of last year alone. Credit markets were hit particularly hard in August, as many uh, participants found it difficult to refinance the asset-backed commercial paper they'd issued. Banks began holding launder, larger precautionary reserve balances with us then, and that put upward pressure on interbank lending rates. The New York Federal Reserve Bank injected significantly more reserves than usual via open market operations in order to relieve the pressure and keep the overnight federal funds rate near our target rate. In addition, the Board of Governors accepted Reserve Bank requests to lower the discount rate by a half a percentage point, reducing the spread above the federal funds rate target from its traditional 100 basis point level to 50 basis points. With concern mounting that housing investment was declining more rapidly than had been expected and that the growth outlook was deteriorating as a consequence, the FOMC reduced the federal funds target rate in September and October, bringing it down at that point three-quarters of a percent to four-and-a-half percent. Financial market conditions showed some improvement in September and October, but turned problematic again in late November, a month that also saw further deterioration in the real outlook as measures of housing market activity continued to come in below expectations. In December, wholesale funding markets increasingly showed the effects of heightened uncertainty surrounding financial institutions' adjustment requirements. Term funding spreads uh, relative to expected overnight rates became quite elevated for some banks. Differentiation in rates across institutions became more pronounced, and the volume of term funding in the interbank market contracted. Increases in interbank interest rates associated with year-end balance sheet pressures have occurred in the past many times, but market participants appeared to expect low federal funds rates over the year-end. Rates at the federal home loan banks were closer to the expected overnight funds rate than to LIBOR, the interbank uh, benchmark rate. And that may explain the relatively small amount of discount window borrowing since our August reduction in the discount rate uh, spread over the target. All this suggests that term funding premia reflected assessments of counterparty risk in the interbank market rather than expectations that the funds rate would spike at year-end as it has sometimes in the past. Against this backdrop, the Federal Reserve introduced a new mechanism for providing term funding to financial institutions. The Term Auction Facility, or TAF, makes 28-day loans of a predetermined total amount at a rate set in an auction. 
These loans are otherwise similar to discount window loans made by a bank's regional reserve bank against collateral posted with that reserve bank. Since these auctions began near the end of December, spreads on interbank term loans have fallen significantly and returned to about where they were last November before the, the year-end funding difficulties emerged. It's going to be difficult to determine the extent to which the TAF contributed to the easing of rates in the term funding market since we'll never observe the counterfactual of not having introduced the TAF. An earlier instance of elevated term funding spreads peaking in early September, however, abated without such action by the Fed. As one would expect, revised assessments of mortgage lending risk have resulted in tightening credit standards for businesses and consumers. Uh, there was a release just yesterday uh, of the Senior Loan Officer Survey uh, that showed just that. Many lenders are requiring larger down payments and mortgage rate spreads have increased significantly for riskier borrowers and riskier products. Mortgage rates have come down since December, however. The rate on the conventional 30-year fixed rate mortgage has fallen about 45 basis points. And even though the spread between jumbo and conforming mortgages has widened a bit, jumbo rates have also eased in recent weeks, coming down to, uh, by about 20 basis points. Spreads on investment-grade corporate bonds have widened over the last month, but still the yields on such debts have fallen. On the other hand, interest rates on high-yield debt and commercial mortgage-backed securities moved up in the last half of 2007 and have increased further since the beginning of the year. The strong differentiation in response of lending spreads across borrower classes suggests that increasing spreads have been driven mainly by changing risk assessments rather than by bank funding pressures per se. Higher risk spreads and generally tight, tighter lending terms will tend to restrict spending in affected institutions and individuals in the near term. But the fall in short-term and long-term treasury rates over the last few months has offset the upward movement in higher spreads for a wide variety of borrowers. And the net effect has been lower rates for all but the highest risk borrowers. In fact, lower reference rates have meant that more adjustable rate mortgage borrowers will see their interest rate go down rather than go up in coming months. The economic outlook for 2008 has worsened in response to developments of the last six months, and the recent flow of data has heightened the downside risks. The housing sector has been and will continue to be affected by the tightening that we've seen in lending standards in recent months. New home sales have fallen a cumulative total of 64% from their peak in October of 2005. The housing starts are unlikely to bottom out this year, I expect housing investment to continue to be a drag on growth through at least the end of this year. Business investment has contributed positively to growth over the last year, but I expect it to grow less robustly in 2007 since some firms are experiencing a higher cost of capital and most firms face heightened uncertainty in the demand for their products. A particularly dramatic change is likely to occur in commercial construction, which is a key segment of business investment. Construction spending for new stores and offices grew by a healthy 10% after inflation last year. But we've heard reports from our district contacts of a significant softening of conditions lately, with major projects being deferred or canceled outright. This is consistent with the observation that vacancy rates for retail space have increased over the last year. The most recent investment data we actually have are for December, and those reports indicate continued growth in construction activity and new orders uh, for business equipment. 
So this category is going to bear close watching um, over the coming months. But again, this illustrates the importance of our regional context relative to the relatively uh, long-lagged uh, data flow that we get. I think exports are likely to remain a, a source of strength next year, however. It's a weaker dollar and uh, continuing growth abroad, or at least growth at uh, stronger rates than we see here, are going to support the demand for U.S. goods and services. Accordingly, I expect the trade deficit to continue to narrow, providing modest support to real GDP growth. On the other hand, we're, we're hearing reports of unexpectedly low tax revenues in state government sector. That's likely to mean some pruning of expenditures in that sector in coming months. That will be a little bit of a dragging growth. The main story for the forecast, though, remains household spending, which accounts for 70% of GDP. Consumer spending held up relatively well until the end of last year, having grown at a solid two and a quarter percent rate in real terms during the three months ending in November, two and a quarter percent annual rate. In December, however, real spending was flat, zero growth. Higher energy prices and falling home prices are often cited as factors that could dampen consumer spending, and I think these are legitimate concerns. In addition, we will see more moderate growth in household income in the year ahead due to a weaker labor market, I believe. Job growth slowed over the course of 2007, and in January, employment was reported to have fallen by 17,000 jobs nationwide. The unemployment rate has risen by a half a percentage point since March and now stands at 4.9%. More industries now show declines in employment rather than increases. Fewer small businesses plan to increase hiring, according to surveys. And our own surveys of economic activity in the 5th District, we are hearing an increasing number of firms have cut back on their hiring plans recently. Other indicators are flashing less discouraging signals, however. Layoff announcements have continued to fall through December, and the U.S. Department of Labor's measure of job openings has remained at a relatively high level for over a year. My own expectation, though, is that job growth will be lethargic at best for much of this year. Putting this all together into a single picture, we obviously have experienced a significant decline in growth in overall economic activity since August, and much of the decline has occurred in the last two months. My sense is that the most likely outcome is that we will see sluggish growth for at least half a year before gradual firming begins. A legitimate question is whether conditions will weaken further, in other words, whether the economy will enter a recession. There are two keys to answering that question, I believe. The first is business investment. As I mentioned, there are some early signs that investment is slowing, but the most recent monthly data still suggests some forward momentum. The other key is the jobs market. There's a fair amount of month-to-month -month volatility in the employment numbers, so it's quite possible that the underlying trend is stronger than the January reading by itself would indicate. If job growth is positive in the months ahead and if wages can stay ahead of inflation, then income growth should be sufficient to support consumer spending gains and allow us to skirt the boundary of a recession. As I said, though, my sense is that the most likely path is sluggish growth in the near term. But I can also see the possibility of a mild recession, similar to the last two we've experienced. In other words, shallow and with a slow recovery. What I don't expect is a more serious recession like those we saw in 1982 or 1974. Keep in mind that monetary policy has moved aggressively in recent months and that inflation-adjusted interest rates are now very low by historical standards. 
that by itself won't solve all our problems, but it will help support activity enough to at least avoid the worst outcomes, I believe, and possibly avoid a recession altogether. I would emphasize that this outlook does not incorporate an overly sanguine view of either the housing market or financial markets. The swollen inventory of unsold homes that we see in most major markets is a clear reason to project further weakness in new home construction. And until home inventories fall to sustainable levels, I'd expect further declines in home prices and soft demand. So my overall growth outlook incorporates a continued drag from housing this year. Declining home prices will further increase the number of borrowers with negative equity in their home. And since this is a key dr driver of mortgage defaults and foreclosures, especially for less creditworthy borrowers, I expect continued increases in subprime loss rates experienced. Now, sound valuations of mortgage-backed securities already account for the higher projectable ultimate loss rates on various mortgages as the vintages age through their life cycle. These are just projections at this point, though. Actual experience come, could come in either better or worse than expected. Unexpected reductions in the values of mortgage-related securities could spark new episodes in financial market turmoil. But I believe financial market participants will find ways to work through these problems as the year, problems as the year progresses. Financial intermediaries will continue to readjust their balance sheets and replenish capital as needed and will strengthen risk management practices as they take on board the lessons of the last year. Investors will continue to reallocate portfolios as they deem appropriate. And their heightened desire for transparency will help shape the next generation of financial innovations. Risks are not limited to the outlook for economic growth, however. Inflation has stepped up recently. As measured by the 12-month change in the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, our favorite measure of inflation, Inflation was 3.5% in June of 2006. That measure fell to 1.8% in August of 2007. Similarly, core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy categories, was 2.5% in August of 2006 and then declined to 1.8% in August of 2007. Those declines were heartening. And when financial market turmoil intensified in August, the improving inflation picture allowed even an inflation hawk to endorse an easier monetary policy stance. Since then, however, the inflation picture has deteriorated. From August through December, the overall PCE price index rose at a 4.3% annual rate, and the core index rose at a 2.8% annual rate. These numbers do display transitory swings, so I wouldn't extrapolate them forward indefinitely. But still, I have to say that I'm uncomfortable with the inflation picture and disappointed that the improvement we saw earlier this year was not more lasting. I'm also troubled by the lengthy divergence we've seen between the overall and the core inflation measures. Some of you may recall that when the core inflation was devised in the 1970s to filter out some of the more volatile consumer prices and get a better read on inflation trends, for several decades, core inflation seemed to work well due to the fact that food and energy prices have no clear trend relative to the overall price level. In the last few years, however, overall inflation has been persistently above core inflation, and few observers expect oil prices to go back down below $20 a barrel. Because the job of a central banker is to protect the purchasing power of our currency, it is the overall inflation rate we need to keep down, not just core inflation. Going forward, 
market participants expect oil prices to back off slightly from their current level, and I hope they have the direction right this time. In the last few weeks, the Fed has responded to signs of weakening economic growth with further cuts in the federal funds rate, bringing the cumulative reduction to two and a quarter percent, bringing the federal funds target rate down to three percent. A lower inflation-adjusted interest rate is required when growth is slower because that means softer relative demand for resources now compared with resources in the future. In my view, the prominence of downside risks means that further easing ultimately may be warranted. However, my expectation that growth is likely to be sluggish this year figured prominently in my, into my thinking about policy last month. So if incoming data is not weaker than expected over the ne next several months, it's not clear further rate cuts would be warranted. Let me win, end with one final thought. Inflation also presents risks to the outlook. Throughout the period since 2005, when inflation rose, eased off, then rose again, longer-term inflation expectations, as best we can measure them, have remained fairly stable. And this stability has been comforting because it makes it easier for me to support interest rate cuts when a weakening growth outlook calls for it. The longer we go, however, experiencing only upside inflation misses, the more we risk losing the credibility we've fought so hard to maintain. That concludes my remarks. I'm sorry I couldn't bring you a rosier forecast, but uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you here today.